Please open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to be reading from chapter 7, starting at verse 11, going all the way through verse 17. Hear these words from the book that we love. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin, I need to teach you a word that's going to be a very, very important word. Sort of this entire message will pivot around this one word. So it'll be incredibly important that you write it on your heart right now. Are you ready to memorize it with me? It's just one word. It's in Greek. So it might be a little difficult. We'll say it a few times, but here we go. I can't remember the word now. I must, I must not have it memorized well enough. It is splagnizomai. Can you say the first half with me? Splag. Splagnizomai. One more time with some conviction. Splag needs oh my. Would you like to know what you're memorizing? Well, tough luck. I'm not going to tell you yet. Splag needs oh my. This is a very important word. It's a curious word. This word is only used once to describe Jesus. It's used a couple other times in the New Testament, but in Luke it's only used once. We'll get back to that in a second. First, I need you to come with me to my sophomore year of college. I went to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, where my sophomore year, I stuck my head together with five of my best buddies, and we concocted an incredible plan. It was, it was an adventure of a lifetime. It was for our spring break. So it's March in Michigan, about 2005. The snow is starting to melt. It's springtime, right? The air is still a little crisp. But we figured if we headed south, I mean south of Indiana, even further south than Kentucky, if we, if we went all the way to Tennessee or North Carolina, it would be warm enough for us to go hiking. So we came up with this idea. We're going to go hiking for spring break. Some of our other friends who were more rational said, I'm going to stay at home and earn some money or... I'm going to go to Florida and have some female companionship, but that didn't interest us. 
We wanted the wilderness. We wanted to brave the weather. We wanted to climb mountains. We wanted to fish for fish. So we went to the Smoky Mountain National Park right on the edge of North Carolina and Tennessee. I remember when we were packing up my mom's minivan, she handed me like a 10-pound Ziploc bag of trail mix just in case I got hungry. My friends sort of laughed because 10 pounds is way too much to be carrying on a hiking trip. We hit the open road. We got down there. Our first day was beautiful. It was like we were supposed to be there. We started off on a trail that was wide enough for us to, I mean, hike five shoulders apart. Um, We were taking pictures and having the best time. The first river we crossed had an actual man-made bridge that we could cross over. Our next river had like a log with sort of a rail just sort of attached to it. Our next river didn't have any kind of a bridge. We just had to hop across some rocks. You could tell we were getting deeper and deeper into the wilderness. We camped our first night and woke up the second day, and we had a lake in mind that was about 12 miles away. We were going to get there by the end of the night. 12 miles in one day, we can do it. It's not that far. Around noon, we had been hiking for a few hours, and all of a sudden, it started to rain. And then before long, it started to get cold. Now, most of my friends are athletes. They were all soccer players, and then there was me. I did no training at all for this. And so I quickly sort of fell behind the pack and was left alone. And as it started to rain, and as the temperature started to drop, and as my legs started to cramp from the 50-pound bag on my back and the constant uphill, I started to get a little worried. Am I going to make these 12 miles? Well, it actually got cold enough so that icicles started forming on the trees around us. We didn't have winter gear with us. I started to become actually nervous, like, okay, I mean, my friends have to be really far in front at this point. What am I going to do? Well, my left leg started to cramp so badly that I I couldn't go any further. And I found myself really really terrified. I ended up sitting down on the ground thinking, what am I going to do? I cannot make it any further. Today we're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about this strange phenomena that all of us face, even when we're not in the middle of the wilderness hiking through a snowstorm. We suffer, right? I mean, if we're totally honest and totally vulnerable with ourselves, we suffer. Bad things happen to us. We lose our jobs. We get lost in the wilderness. We get left behind. And and a lot of times what happens when we suffer is we feel alone. We feel alone. Like even though your husband knows you have breast cancer and wants to be there for you, he just doesn't quite get it. Or even though you've both been unemployed before, one of you still has a job, and the one who's unemployed knows you just don't quite get it. Sometimes when we suffer, it's like we're alone in the world. 
In our story today, in Luke chapter 7, there is a woman who is clearly suffering, right? She's a widow. She has lost her husband. That's why she's a widow. And now she's lost her only son. Before we unpack some of the the stuff behind her suffering and how Jesus responds, I want us to think about the context that chapter 7 of Luke's big story about Jesus is within. In chapter 6, Jesus is teaching. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Sermon on Level Ground. And Jesus is teaching all these interesting ideas to his disciples. He says something like, Blessed are those who weep today, for they will laugh. And then, after he's done teaching in chapter 7, there's these two strange stories sort of juxtaposed right next to each other where Jesus actually embodies the things he's been teaching. He shows up in the midst of people weeping and suffering, and he brings unexpected healing. In the first story, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, a centurion's servant is ill deathly ill on the brink of dying. And he sends word to Jesus that he has the faith that this Jesus could heal his servant if he just says the word. Now, Jesus is so impressed at this centurion's faith that he says, nobody in Israel even has faith like this. And he says the word and the servant is healed. My question for you is, Now, where is faith in this story that comes right after that? Where is faith in this story? I'm convinced that Luke is trying to tell us something about Jesus by having a story about faith in the midst of suffering, sort of guiding us out of suffering by by the grace of Jesus, and then having a story where, where maybe faith isn't at the forefront and yet still having Jesus address the situation, I'm convinced this tells us something about the nature of God, which is why we have to talk about that word you memorized. The question at stake is, when we suffer, does God care? Does God care when we suffer? What was going on inside God when I was in the middle of that snowstorm sitting there with a cramped leg. What, was, what is going on inside God when, when you receive bad news and your heart breaks, when you get dumped by your boyfriend? Does God care? And if God does or doesn't care, what does it take for God to do something? In the first story, God did something because a man had great faith. So why does God do something in this story? All right, what was that word you memorized? I've already forgotten it. Have you? It was something like, splag, nizomai. Does that sound right? Can you say that once? Splag, nizomai. Splag, nizomai. This is a strange word, and it talks about um, what Jesus is actually feeling. So, He is walking with a group of people 
behind him, and he comes upon the city of Nain, which is just a few miles south of Galilee. I mean, this is like his backyard stomping ground. Um, And as he approaches, walking out of the city gate is a funeral procession. He stops and he looks at this woman who he knows is a widow and who he knows is the mom of the dead man in the coffin. And what does the story say happens? When the Lord saw her, he splognizomai. Splognizomai comes from the Aramaic word for, actually for womb, or for like the guts. Jesus, upon seeing this woman, who, I mean, in the ancient world, if you lose your husband, that means your inheritance might not be a real thing in your life. Where are you going to get your money from? Your only source of well-being would be from your sons, and then you lose your only son. That means this widow, now, for the rest of her life, will be dependent upon charity, dependent upon a tithe from produce once every three years, she would just be sort of gently pushed to the edge of the city of Nain, marginalized by her people, no longer having family. I mean, this is suffering. Jesus sees her, and deep in his guts, he feels for her. Some translations translate that word that I can't even say, uh, Jesus had compassion for her. The message says Jesus' heart broke for her. The NIV says um, his heart went out to her. But something more important than just Jesus seeing her and having this sort of cognitive, up in the head, um, all-knowing sort of thing happens. Something deep in his body stirs, and he knows intimately what is going on with this woman. That communicates something very important to us about God. God is compassionate. Compassion, the word compassion itself means to suffer with. When Jesus approaches someone who's suffering, he he suffers with them. Deep in his guts, he suffers with them. So, does God care about you when you suffer? What's the answer to that? Yes. Yes, he doesn't just care. It turns out he's phlognizomize, which is just this brilliant concept to me. I like to think about that a lot. What happens next? He cares so much that he tells her, do not weep. He's about to enact that teaching where he said, blessed are those who weep today, for they will laugh. He tells her not to weep. And then he does this other strange thing. He goes up to the actual funeral possession, to the coffin. He approaches it, and he touches the coffin. Why? In the ancient world, if someone is dead, what do you not do? Touch them. To touch someone who's dead means... You have now become unclean. In in the Jewish purity law, 
the holiness of God was lifted up so high that any form of death or any bodily excretion was a form of degeneration or degradation or decomposition from the holy ways of God, from life itself. Death was a bad thing, and the last thing you would want to do is mess with a dead body. That's why in Luke you get the story of the Good Samaritan and all those rabbis walking all the way around the road so they don't get anywhere near that potentially dead body. Jesus upon seeing a dead body, goes up and touches the coffin. Maybe I could say it this way. When Jesus looks at this woman and sees her, the suffering, he doesn't just see it. He feels it in, its, in his guts. And then that's not enough. He needs to touch it in its source. He needs to go all the way to the deepest place of the misery, all the way to the heart of the decomposition, to the death itself. He needs to touch it and stop it and confront it right there because from that point of death, we're spiraling out towards resurrection. From that point of darkness, we're, we're bent towards light. This story itself functions as a microcosm, a metaphor, if you will, for the, the very incarnation of God as Jesus Christ, for the cross and the resurrection. I mean, this is the story of the gospel, that God would condescend himself to become human being, to strap on flesh, to experience our suffering in a tangible and physical way, to even go to the extent of being tortured and beaten, and, and nailed to a cross, all the way down to death, just to let the glory of the Father defeat that death, and shoot us out towards resurrection. That's what's going on in this story, if you ask me. I think it's kind of cool. So, he touches the coffin. Jesus is bent on experiencing suffering all the way down. And then he speaks. He says, get up. And the dead man sits up. Now, if you are going to really know what's going on in this story, you need to use your imagination. So, I'd like to just do a fun little exercise with you, if we could. I would like you to get in a time machine and come with me 2,000 years ago. We're going we're gonna to walk with Jesus. No, let's be in Nain. We're going to walk from Nain with this funeral procession. Now, in the first century, if somebody in a town like Nain died, the entire town were all the townspeople. We would all go to the funeral. We're walking. Up ahead, there's the woman. There's... There's the widow whose son we're mourning. It's a hot summer day. Beads of sweat are mixing with tears. There's people wailing. Funerals in the ancient world are much more organic and sort of safe to just howl out with pain than, than sort of our cold. We're all facing the same direction and we're a little scared to cry at funerals. Funerals in the ancient world were a little bit more like, I'm going to put my arm around you and we're going we're to go bury this person. So we're heading from the town center out to the gate. 
We're going to walk down a hill to another hill where there's a cave. And inside this cave is the, is the bones of this widow's husband, Mr. Peterson. His bones have been carefully and honorably placed in a bone box, leaving, a, leaving an empty slot in his family's tomb for this boy, for his son. The slot should have been for his, for his wife, but she's not there yet. For now, it'll be for the boy. This is where we're walking towards this cave. And all of a sudden, a man shows up with a crowd of people behind him. You see him looking at the woman, Mrs. Peterson. And you see something deep inside of him stirring. He says something to her. You can't quite hear what he said. But then he walks up to the coffin and touches it and stops the people who are carrying it. And then the strangest thing happens. Now, I have never seen this happen at a funeral before. Maybe you have. I hope not. But he says to the person in the coffin something. Stand up. I mean, what if you went to a funeral? Can we just sort of take ourselves out of this situation and really observe how strange this is? That he's talking to a dead person at a funeral saying, stand up. And then the dead person sits up and starts talking and is clearly alive. This would be completely unexpected, obviously. Completely unexpected. So what's at stake? Sometimes when we suffer, we not only feel alone, we not only feel hopeless, but our world shrinks down to the point where there seems like there's only one path. We become convinced that we know what the future will be when in reality, I mean, let's be honest, do any of us know the future? Absolutely not. None of us do. But sometimes when we suffer, we become convinced that we know life is heading in this particular direction. So, here's how this story can change your life. When you think about this next week, what it is that you're most anxious about, maybe it's a meeting that you've got to have with the boss and you're just not really excited about it. Maybe it's an interview that you have for a job, but there's that anxiety inside of you. Maybe you've got to go to your mother-in-law's house, and that's just not the most exciting thing. Think in your mind right now, what is it in your upcoming week where, that you know you're going to be suffering? Maybe it's a doctor's appointment. Maybe you have been having this long battle with something that... It's suffering, and it's hard, and it bears deeply on your soul. Now, 
before you project out exactly where that suffering is going to bring you, before you think you know where you're heading, I want you to stop and prayerfully see what it would be like. Use your imagination now. See what it would be like for this strange man, Jesus, to meet you in the middle of that suffering, to speak to you, to go to the root of the problem and touch it physically and have that problem change in a totally unexpected way. Now, you don't know how. You don't know how it will change. Remember, this, this man sitting up was totally out of left field. It's totally unexpected. I don't know how this would work in your life, but I wonder, I just wonder, what would it be like to have Jesus meet you in the middle of your place of suffering. Come back to me, or come back with me to the Appalachian Trail. We're in the middle of a snowstorm. I've got this left leg thing going on. My friends are somewhere up ahead, and I just don't know if I'm going to have the strength to get to them. I sit down on the ground, and I actually begin to cry because I'm terrified that I'm not going to make it. My suffering has gotten to the point where I know that I do not have the physical capacity to go forward. I can feel my world sort of shrinking in. And I become convinced that if my friends don't come back to me, there's just, it'll be game over. There will be no way that I can make it. That is the only option. And I sit there, and I wait, and I think, and I pray, and I sit there, and I wait, and nobody comes. I'm soaked to the bone. It's still raining, sleeting, snowing. Icicles are getting bigger on the trees, and I keep sitting there. It's been probably five or ten minutes now. And I get up, and I start walking. And I don't walk for more than a few minutes when all of a sudden, through the fog and through the clouds and through the haze of the Smoky Mountains, I see a building right on up ahead. Nobody told me that on the Appalachian Trail, every eight to ten miles, they have these lean-to buildings that people can stay in if there's a storm. I didn't expect this. But yet there it is. And I walk inside, and there are all my friends, dripping wet, huddling around a fire about this big, trying to wring out their clothes and hang them up to dry. My body hurts. I'm not in a good place. But in this unexpected way, I'm okay. I wonder what it would look like for you to have Jesus meet you in the middle of your place of suffering. May you have this. May you meet this Jesus. May this Jesus speak to you. May this Jesus touch you. May you know that this Jesus deep in his guts cares about you. And may this Jesus surprise you with what he says. Amen.